Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning and that, Jesus, you would come to us clothed in scripture, that you would empower us to follow you faithfully. I pray for everybody here this morning, those who find themselves exhausted or distracted, frustrated or bitter, that you would speak tenderly to their hearts. For those who walk in this door who are thankful, God, that you'd encourage them. And yeah, God, that you would just meet all of us through your son, Jesus, by the power of your spirit and through your word. Amen. Good morning. My name is Jake, and we are going to continue our sermon series in 1 Samuel. So go ahead and open up to 1 Samuel chapter 16, and you can just place your finger right on verse 1 right there, and that's where we're going to start off today. Um, so the probably like two weeks ago, my family and I got a chance to go to California, take a little vacation. Uh, Lexi's family lives out in the Oceanside area, and so got a chance to go to the beach for the first time with my son. He's never been to the ocean, he's never been to the beach, and so, you know, it was really fun to just see his face, everything is brand new to him. Like every sound, he hears the ocean crashing, he starts like eyes light up, it's really fun to see. And so we get them all set, and if you have kids, you understand you put the towel down to kind of like keep them in a zone so they don't start crawling away on the sand and get messy, but of course, it goes right off of there. And so I'm watching Asher, and you watch his little eyes, and he looks at the sand, picks up the sand, he feels the sand in his hand, and he's like, this feels good, this looks good. And so then he proceeds to try to put the sand in his mouth. And of course, his parents who rush, like, no, 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 we try to stop him. But he's, he's going to get the sand in his mouth. You know, he's determined. So he just keeps trying to do that. And eventually we miss it. And the sand just goes right into his mouth. And you see his eyes, sand, you know, looked good, seemed good, felt good, puts it in his mouth. And now he's distraught, you know, looking around, looks at us like, what have you done to me? And... You put the sand in your mouth, man, and cries, we comfort him, and, you know, there's his first story with sand. So, I, you know, I'm like, okay, well, he learned, you know, it's only going to take him once, put sand in his mouth, try to eat it. Uh, but then I come home, and sure enough, we, uh, me and Asher are going on a drive, and uh, Lexi goes for a swim, we go do our own thing, sometimes go to the ASU pull-up bars, and there's a little sandbox right there, right? So we're out there. And I'm like, well, you know, just sit in the car seat's kind of boring. So I take Asher out and I'm like, I'll put him in the sandbox. He can kind of crawl around, enjoy the outdoors and he's gonna be fine with the sand. So he sits down and immediately you see like his eyes again, like he looks down at the sand, he picks up the sand, he feels it in his hand. He's like, this feels good, this looks good. And then he begins to like put it towards his mouth again. So what do you do as a dad? Let him eat it. He put it in his mouth and he, he like chewed up for a second and then immediately face just begins to go distraught again. I was like, oh my gosh, like, Asher, you should have known better. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a silly, silly example, but we all have a lot of pain in our lives where we see something that's good, we think it's going to be good, and then we try to make it our own way. It's like the oldest sin in the book. Adam and Eve, Eve saw the fruit, saw it was good, and then ate, and then 
chaos and death and brokenness ensues, right? So if, if God is kind of like in that scenario, like a father, right? One of the hardest things is actually when, you know, you just get to get your own way and God just lets you experience your own way. But the, the narrative changes quite a bit too, because if you think about it, you know, like if I watch my son eat sand and he cries and then I pick him up, take care of it and, you know, wash him off, get him taken care of, I'm a good dad. Maybe some of you guys are judging my parenting skills already, but he's alive. Just a couple of sandy diapers after that. <laughs> However, if I just let him eat sand and then I say, you know what, man, do it your own way. And then I get in the car and I leave him there. I'm a neglectful father. So which one is it? When God just turns this over to have it your way, is it in love or is he neglecting? And that, that, that kind of moment, right, where the sand goes in the mouth and you realize that what you've just tried and what you thought would be good is now ruining your life or hurting or really going up against the definition of good. Your definition of good wasn't God's and so you're experiencing that. You get to the point exactly where Israel is in the story. You see in verse one where Samuel, you know, God says to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him, from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. So you find Samuel is there grieving, heartbroken, and kind of as an entire nation right now, I'm guessing that they're experiencing that in the same way. But Samuel even especially more to that because he knows a little bit more of the story of Israel. It's, it's this long story where for example, in the book of Judges, the rhythm goes, the people of God have God at their disposal to care for them and to rescue them and take care of them. They decide they would rather go their own way, define good for themselves. It leads to a mouthful of sand. It breaks down society. They crawl out, cry out to God for help and God rescues them with a judge. And that pattern, just keep, they just keep going back to the same thing again and again and again. And I'm sure at this moment in the story, right? Samuel is watching the downfall of the King Saul that they asked for. God told him it would be like this. Told him the king is not a good idea. If you want a king that is going to be like all the other nations, it's going to go bad for you. And they say, we want it anyways. And I imagine that Samuel right now, as he's watching the downfall of Saul, is probably a little bit hopeless in the sense of going, and we thought maybe at least the king might be a little bit different. Maybe if I try it this way, it might actually work out for good. So yeah, of course he's hopeless and God comes to him and says, how long are you gonna grieve? But then here we get, the question is, what is God going to do? What is God going to do when his people openly choose to go what isn't good for them and what they say is good, but isn't good. And then they do it and it begins to be proverbial sand in the mouth, begins to wreck the nation of Israel, wreck their lives. What is God going to do? Well, what God does is rather than scrap the whole system of kingship, right? Which 
you think that would be kind of like the move. You asked for a king, it didn't work, moving on, no more king. But instead, what you see is that God leans into it. This story is the story of God saying, this is who my king will be. He tells Samuel to get up and go. He's gonna have him go anoint a new king and says in verse two, it's the king that I have provided for myself. We're gonna see who God's version of king is, who his version of good, who his version of savior will be. Israel has a God that is slow to anger and patient and abounding in love. And even those people are choosing to go the route of rebellion, he is going to visit them, lean into this idea of king, but instead of giving them the king that they want, he's gonna give them the king that they actually need, the king that God chooses and provides. So he gets up, but Samuel immediately responds And we see that he's afraid in verse two that Saul is going to kill him, which is just a clue for us that it's going exactly how God said it would go. Saul is the king. And then in the last stories, we heard that God removed the kingship from Saul. Samuel told him that God has rejected him. But in this story, we see that Saul is now clinging to the kingship with the power and force of the threat of death. Like he has turned into a king just like all the other nations. He's threatening with violence. We'll see in the very next moment that he has collected servants around himself, just like God said. And so Samuel's afraid that he's gonna get killed and God kind of recognizes it in his response. Yeah, that might actually happen. So he tells him, grab a cattle, a cow and go and you'll give a sacrifice. At least you have that disguise there for you to go. And so he gets up, he goes, and he shows up at the house of Jesse, and everybody shows up there for the sacrifice. And what you get is kind of this playful drama that ensues, because the first thing that happens, you see in verse six, is that Samuel gets there, he sees the first son of Jesse, and he goes, this is the guy, because he's tall, just like Saul was, which is sad because you think that, I mean, Samuel, he would at least be able to realize, okay, that didn't work out. But how many times do we think, okay, this'll work out, it doesn't, and we find ourselves back in the exact same pattern. It's not just that we eat sand, it's we eat sand again and again and again, and we think maybe this time it'll work out better. So Samuel sees And he notices that this man is tall. Maybe he could look like a warrior. And he assumes, okay, this is the new anointed king. This is the one that God's going to select. But God speaks to him and says, don't look on his appearance. I have rejected him. In verse seven, it says, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God's gonna provide his own king, but this is gonna be a very unexpected king. You see, back then, they had this problem in ancient Israel where as a society and as a culture, they would look on the outside reality of what people looked like, what a situation looked like, and they would judge things based off of the outward appearance, judge people based off of the outward appearance. I know it's hard to relate to because in our culture, we don't do that at all. (laughs) 
It's laughable because if Israel, ancient Israel as a culture had a problem with what they see being what they determine what being good or not is, we have it way worse. Way worse. Because back then they could, they could create up the idea, maybe what we need is we just need this, this leader, this ruler who's gonna be able to take care of us and, and lead us like a, like a true king. Never mind the fact that God's right there going, I'm your king. They go, no, 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 we need a king that's gonna, it's gonna look like this. Now, it's hard for us to relate because the last time that you thought about any kind of rulership or leadership is maybe once every four years, you gotta think about who's elected for like a few moments. But by and large, who has the ultimate authority in your life? You do. Who's the king? You are. In our culture at this time where we're at, by and large, all the majority of the decisions that you will make for the rest of your life are going to be made by you. And that's the place that we find ourselves in. And so you see within our culture, actually, the reflections of that. We are more than any other culture obsessed with outward appearance because what we need is we need even the people that we idolize and look to to look like they have it together, even if they don't because then I don't have to reflect on the reality that I, as my own ruler, have failed. So the story, the drama of the story unfolds. The first guy comes out, God goes, that's not the king that I have chosen. I look at the heart. And so then it says another son of Jesse comes and God tells Samuel, nope, it's not that guy. And then another son comes, nope, it's not that guy. Nope, it's not that guy. And at like five or six, I imagine Jesse's like, what is going on? And I imagine even Samuel's like, what's going on? They go through all seven sons that are there and God rejects all of them to the point that Samuel says in verse 11, hey, are all your sons even here? Because God keeps rejecting all these people. So Jesse goes, well, you know, like there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. The king that God's gonna choose, King David, is so unexpected that his dad doesn't even invite him. <laughs> He's so young that he just assumes he could not possibly be included for whatever is going on that is happening here. But God is gonna choose a king based off of the heart. What's different about King David, and you'll see within his story, is that he is the king that chases after God's own heart. Now, he's not gonna be a perfect king. We'll get to that later. But if Saul's the king that the people go, we want this, this is what's good for us. David will represent the king that God goes, this is what you will get and what you need. And it's a king who steps onto the scene in a very unexpected way. He doesn't come in violence. He doesn't create a big show. He's not like Saul. He doesn't step on the scene dramatically. He is the unexpected, unnoticed unlikely king. And so Samuel's told to anoint him. He pours the oil on him at the end of this kind of dramatic telling of the story. And now we have a new king, the King David. But it's, I don't know if you've had this experience as you're reading through the book of Samuel or maybe some of these other Old Testament books. I've read these books and gotten to the end of it. And I was like, you know, honestly, this would make like a good HBO series, like the Game of Kings but I don't get the point. 
Like why, like, why do I care about the drama back and forth of the kings of ancient Israel? Is this just a story where whoever wrote this is just gonna pine on about uh, ancient nostalgia of when David was the king? Like, why are we given this story and why does the Holy Spirit want us to hear this story in the same way? We don't have kings, but again, we today are the rulers. And so what the book of Samuel is trying to wrestle through is is what is it like to have a God who is king and ruler, but then also have this human-like king and what might it be like that? And again and again, Samuel is creating this longing again and again for we need a king, but we need a king better than that. We need a king who's more like this. And so here we're introduced to the best king that Israel's gonna ever have, King David, And the first thing that you see is that he doesn't necessarily look like a king. So God is trying to teach his people, even back then, that when God gives his good version, his savior, his king, it might not look like what the rest of the world thinks it's gonna look like. And that's actually what we need. Because again, we live in a culture that is obsessed with appearance looking like a certain thing, even if internally it doesn't match and doesn't look good. So, I mean, you guys, like, there's a song by Drake. You probably all know it. It goes, I know a girl whose one goal was to visit Rome, that she finally got to Rome, and all she did was ever post pictures for people at home because all that mattered was impressing everybody she's known. I know that another girl that's crying out to help, but her latest caption is, leave me alone. I know a girl happily married till she puts down her phone. <laughs> it's one person listening to Drake. You guys are totally faking it. All right, all right, all right, all right. So, you know, if that doesn't work. So one of my favorite artists is a guy named John Bellion. He's got a song called The Internet. And it goes, I don't need the word. I just need you to think I said it. I don't need to learn. I just need you to think I get it. I don't need the sermon. I just need you to think I read it. Perception in our culture is more important than the internal heart. Why do you think we have for the last like 10 to 15, 20 years continual downfall of leaders, Christian or not, but we just go into the same rhythms? Because in our culture, we don't mind if eternally you're falling apart as long as you look like you're holding it together. Because then it doesn't put any pressure on me in my self-life rulership to face the reality that I'm a bad king and I need something better. We have created a world that facades to band-aid over the fact that we are eating sand and it is not working. What is God gonna do? If we just keep eating sand, what, what, is, what is God's character in this story? How does he respond to his people that do that, who can't see what is good or what is wrong? And that's the biggest problem throughout human history is this, this breakdown of God says this is good. And we go, you know what? I'm going to define good as this instead. Every problem you see in the world is two human beings defining good and evil for themselves And the problems happen when those definitions don't line up. So this story here shows God's king is not gonna look necessarily like your definition of what you think it's gonna look like. Interestingly enough, you've got in this line right here, 
that God cares not about outward appearance, right? I don't know if you notice this. Doesn't care about outward appearance, cares about the heart. But then, I don't know if you guys noticed this, in verse 12, the moment David steps onto the scene, it gives a description in verse 12. He was ruddy and had beautiful eyes as what handsome. Why would you do that? Like you are inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing the book of Samuel. You just saw the downfall of how King Saul was the letdown. They thought he would be a good idea. He was a bad idea. And then Samuel's about to make the same mistake. God goes, no, it's not about outward appearance. It's about what's in the heart. And then the moment that David steps on the scene, who is gonna be the best king that Israel has in their history, and the first descriptor they give is about his outward appearance and how handsome he looks, why would you do that? unless this book isn't about the kings. Unless the Holy Spirit is trying to do something to his people and you, you begin to see it as you keep going in the book because as David rises and then he falls, the only thing you're left with is this hunger for a king a little bit better than David and a little bit better than anything they could have had. And then God gives a promise to David. Someday I'm gonna give my people a king who will sit the throne forever. And he's not going to be like King David. He's going to be better. So all these stories do is they give you hints and clues and longings for the people of God that only can come later. And so the author knows by the end of the book of Samuel that David is going to be a massive failure as a king too. So it's cluing you in, right? It's like a wink, wink. He's also handsome. And we're gonna see his downfall starting with Bathsheba and getting worse and worse and worse from there. This book is not about the kings. It's about the need for a king, a better king. So much so, check this out. In Isaiah, later, when this idea of the anointed one someday coming and fixing not just Israel, right? The whole world, when we get there in Isaiah chapter 53, it goes, who has believed what he has heard from us and whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, talking about this anointed, grew up for him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Hear this part. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This story is to show you that when God moves and he gives his definition of good, when he gives his king, when he gives his hero and that king's way and how he sees the world, it's not gonna look like what you expect. It's gonna push up against every other definition of good within culture. Jesus, who eventually will become the greatest and greater version of David, steps onto the scene and nobody expects him to the point that when people are talking about him, they're like, isn't that that Pono kid from the town in the backwoods of Galilee that nobody cares about? Because nobody could come out of that place. Where are our expectations of good, what you think will give life and truth and good, brushing up against what actually God defines as good. What are you looking to in life for help, salvation, relief, thinking this looks like it might help me and then you put it in your mouth and it tastes like sand. Or maybe where you, you haven't put it in your mouth yet but you're entertaining the idea that it might actually be good. So 
The question is, though, what if the people are so stubborn they won't let go? If my son eats a handful of sand, it's all fun and games. If he eats two handfuls of sand, okay, three handfuls of sand, gonna be really bad diapers later. But if I just keep letting him go as long as he wants to, eventually it's going to hurt him. What is God gonna do with the people that refuses to give up their definition of good? He's gonna give a king who comes to serve in humility. Think about where Saul is at in this next story. So in verse 14, pick up, it goes, the the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And the spirit, the Saul's servant said to him, behold, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul has this this evil tormenting spirit show up out of nowhere and begin to torment him. The language is like a, a bad spirit. And it's a spirit that brings on paranoia and fear. And you see the mental breakdown of Saul over time in the story to the point where he's so paranoid about this throne he's clinging to, he's chucking spears as his own son. So this spirit, they see, they, you know, everybody just assumes, yeah, that's, that's from, the, from the Lord. And so what you need to do is get somebody who's really good at playing music, who's gonna be able to give you some relief, give a little bit of music therapy for what's going on right now. And Saul goes, okay, sounds great. Find me the guy. This is a weird passage, right? Here's what you do when you get to passages that are bizarre like this. Kind of like last week when Saul was talking, or when Josh was talking. First, pause. It's easy to just kind of move on really quickly, right? That's weird, don't wanna deal with it, moving on. But pause. What is this actually saying? It's saying that God sent this spirit to torment Saul. Okay, that's really weird. Why would God do that? Next thing, lean in. Like actually lean in and try to figure out what's going on here and ask this question. How does this fit into the rest of the biblical story? Things get weird when you just pull a story out of the Bible and you don't understand the entirety of what's going on. When you think about Saul and his story and how he got here, what you begin to remake is here's a king who God said, you are king, and he gave him his spirit. All the power that Saul has to be king, to stand his king is from God. And then he disobeys God. And then God comes to Saul and says, you are no longer king. I'm taking that special anointing and spirit from you. But then we see in the next season, the next line, Saul has decided I'm gonna be king anyway. Bad move. So then bigger picture, how does that fit into the entire biblical story? Let me ask you this. What does God typically do in the past, in the story of the Bible with kings who amount servants for themselves, like Saul has clearly done so here, and threatens violence and death in order to keep the kingship, even though God has told that leader to step back and step down, what does God do with those kind of rulers and kings? Think Pharaoh. What did God do with Pharaoh? 
Here you got a moment and it's getting a little complicated, right? Because now God's king for his people has become like the King Pharaoh. What is God gonna do with that? A king who refuses to let go to the point that he's gripping this, this definition of good for himself so tightly, he'll threaten to kill anybody who gets in the way of it. And he will lean into being like king like everybody else and amassing these servants and these slaves. So the next question you ask about a weird passage like this is how did they hear it essentially? Like what, when we're reading this, how did the original audience hear a passage like this? And you immediately notice something different when you just hear the voices of the servants. They just assume it's a spirit from God, right? They have no problem understanding like that there's this bad spirit that God sends because for them, they're like, here's the anointed king who's, who's anointing and the spirit that was on him has been removed. And now he's defiantly standing in front of, in front of God. What do you think's gonna happen? For them also, there really wasn't the complication too of like they thought everything really finds itself originally at some point it's in God's control. They're so tied into the sovereignty of God that they go, yeah, of course it's from God. He has to be behind the scenes in this. Then ask, what can this not be saying, this passage? It cannot be saying that anybody who is struggling through uh, fear and paranoia or any kind of mental health kind of thing, that's because God's just putting it heavy on them because the Bible never speaks that simplistically. Like unless you, you yourself, are the elected by God, chosen king of ancient Israel and then removed and now you're refusing to stand before God in that way, I wouldn't take that as this is, you know, it's this, so therefore it's that. The Bible doesn't speak that simplistically, right? But then I would take a story like this and I would begin to go, what, is, what does this teach us about God? Some surprising things. Think about it. The beginning of the story, God sends a spear on Saul. By the end of the this, of this story, King David has come and is playing and refreshing King Saul. So God sent this spirit and the end of the story that so clearly he's in charge of, his heart is to refresh and take care of Saul. I wonder if this was not God's last ditch effort to get Saul's attention. Like God has said, have it your way as a people. And now King Saul is the representation of them being like, I'm doing it my way. So God's last ditch effort to get the attention is to go, okay, eat the sand. And when they feel it as a people, when he feels it in his own life, the grit, the, the grinding in the teeth, the, the hope of God, his heart is that you would pay attention, he would pay attention and go, this probably isn't working right now. Like, what if Saul at any point during this story goes, you know what? I don't think I'm supposed to be king. <laughs> My hints and clues are God told me explicitly I shouldn't be king. <laughs> now it's going really bad for me as king. And now there's this new young guy who seems to be a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, good presence, and the Lord is supernaturally with him and he's taking care of and serving me. I wonder what that means. The sad thing is Saul, Saul does not repent in this story. It keeps getting worse. It keeps getting bad. So they hear this, right? And that's how they understand the story. It's a little bit more nuanced than just the quick read. Now, I want you to imagine this. Imagine a fish swimming around. 
and this fish is swimming around and he sees above him the dock and he sees a seagull, seagulls on the dock. And this fish goes, you know what? I wanna be out on the dock. And all his fish friends are like, whoa, 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 don't do that. Don't jump out on the dock. The fish don't breathe air. And this fish says, no, don't you dare tell me what I can and cannot be. I will go out on the dock. So the fish jumps out onto the dock. The seagull looks at him and is like, what are you doing? The fish begins to suffocate immediately. All his fish friends are calling to him, jump back in the water, jump back in the water. He can, he's right there on the dock. But instead this fish doubles down, digs his heels in and goes, no, I'm gonna live this way. I will be a fish who breathes air. No matter what anybody says, I will live this way. And then the fish suffocates and dies. If you were to ask the ancient Israelites, was that the fish's fault? Or was that the wrath and judgment of God? They would have looked at you and been like, that's a silly question. Both. The, the, the grinding and the uncomfortability that we experience in our lives, when we directly disobey God, and then God goes, go for it. And then we experience the struggle, we experience the pain, we experience that brokenness, is a warning sign, right? Not of a spiteful and vindictive God, but a world that God created and we are absolutely deciding, I will live outside of his order. So then the loving thing that God does for Saul is he, instead of violently overthrowing him, sending King David in with the cavalry, destroying the whole kingship, he sends in King David and King David, this new king comes to serve humbly and meekly, the old king that's clinging to that power. That's a story that reveals the love and patience of God, his heart and his character for his people, that he is gonna begin to weave into the story of King David and all the kings that his heart is that they would turn away and stop going to the things to eat that destroy them. And he would do it through a king, you know, King David as this example that comes in meekly, comes in to care for the old king, comes in to gently bring refreshment and life. And if King Saul continues to stand where he is, it's gonna be really bad and uncomfortable. And sadly, in the end of the story leads to his destruction. We are meant to read this story and not emulate Saul. So again, this is not like a, like this is happening, so it must be the wrath of God, that simplistic kind of mentality. It's not that, I'm not saying that at all. But I would and might take this story and, and begin to ask God in reflection of my life, am I experiencing the tension, the pain points, the difficulties of my life because I am directly going against what God has told me? Like if I am experiencing, like if you're experiencing the pain points of life within marriage because you actively and absolutely refuse to take on the Christ-like ideology of I will suffer, I will care for, I will serve myself. And then it's just kind of a mess in your marriage. It's not like God is vindictive or hateful towards you to let that pain point be there because the goal is that you go, wait, it's not working. I need to change. 
Where it leads to destruction is when you're like the fish and you go, I will be this way. I will pursue this at any cost, which is what Saul did. So my son's in the playground. He's eating sand. He's put it in his mouth. I'm like, he clearly he's gonna keep eating sand if I just let him sit there. He begins to cry and scream, what do I do? As a dad who loves him, what do I do? I run up to him. I pick him up, I hold him, I hug him, I give him some water, I wash out the sand out of his mouth, I take him home and then I give him real food so that he might know what is good. That's why we have the story of King David. It's not about King David. It's about the ruler, the leader, the king, the way that the people we need. It is meant to point us to Jesus. Jesus told the first, some of the first followers on the road to Emmaus, he began to open up the scriptures and walk through every story and tell them how all of it was about him. This story is about Jesus. And Saul, we can see as a, a reflection of our lives in us if we refuse to listen to God's definition of good. And when we get stubborn. And what you see is God's heart, even when we do that, is a heart to serve to care for us, and his longing is that we might find refreshment in him. How do I know this is about Jesus? I mean, look at this passage right here. Saul says, go ahead, bring in David, figure out that guy, get him so he can take care of me. And look at in verse, uh, verse 19, then verse 20, okay? So Jesse, his dad, David's dad, sends King David, or David in, right? And how does David come in to, to the town to take care of Saul? He comes in, in verse 20, takes a donkey. So the new king comes with a donkey and laden with bread and a skin of wine and then a young goat for sacrifice. The new king comes and he's coming with bread. He's coming with wine. He brings his own sacrifice and he comes in on a donkey. Tell me, I mean, this is why the New Testament writers went at nauseum as much as they could to help you understand that the stories of King David tied to Jesus, that's why Matthew spent a whole chapter to give you every genealogy of Jesus because what they want you to see is that these stories aren't about King David and Saul, they're about Jesus. They're about the longing the world needs and the hopelessness that we have if we don't have a king. If we don't have a king that's good, better than us, not like our definition of good. It's a story that shows us that God's ultimate heart, even when we're active rebellion against him, is to come to us in service, humbly, meekly, with a heart and desire that we repent and turn to him. So at this point, I'm gonna invite the band on the stage. And I, I always wanna end our time. Jesus says, right, that, that the, you know, talking about the word and his teaching, that if we are to take the word and then just hear it and go, eh, no thanks, not really live it out, um, then we're like the person who builds his house on sand. But those who take the word of God and build their life on it, right, responding to it, that's like building our house on a rock. 
So we have heard a story of the kings and we have learned that it's, it's not really just about King David and nostalgia. It's about the desire for a better king and that we only find in Jesus. So here's just some questions I can't ever artificially give what the spirit wants you to do in response, but can give enough for us in this moment to ask together. Maybe ask, God, where in my life am I deciding what is good because it looks good or it feels good, but it's not your definition of good. Maybe ask God, where am I refusing to give up my kingship? Where are the pain points in my life that are evident because I don't wanna let you be king, Jesus? It's not every bit, but just ask. The spirit is something that can do that and say that to us. And then we're gonna respond with bread, with wine. And I want you to imagine not just this being this reminder of Jesus' death, but I want today, take communion. Imagine Jesus is serving you because that would be very much in light of what this king does in this story. And you can go ahead and bow your heads. Be still for a moment. Ask the spirit to speak to you even now beyond what I could ever say into how you might respond, whether it is a response of thanksgiving, worship, repentance, change in direction of life. Ask God, how might I respond today to you, Jesus?